House Roadshow. I am your host, Tank Spaulding, here alone today. Uh, we'll get a little bit into that as to why that is here in a second. Um, but we are happy, 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 happy to have you back for another time together. Uh, just wanted to uh, spend a few moments just explaining, well, first of all, where is Kyle? Um, this is a second episode, he's not here. Um, he uh, is recovering from an injury, and so he will be back with us shortly. We hope sometime uh, by the end of um, December, maybe early January, uh, and we'll get you episode two then. In the meantime, I'm going to give you a series of some special shows just so you can kind of get some content from us, and we'll uh, look forward to that final show together. I wanted to tell you a little bit about what to expect from the channel, explain a little bit about the name of the channel, um, and what to look forward to in the months ahead. I also have um, a brief reflection I'm going to give on two movies I've seen recently, um, The Chosen Christmas Special and Dune, uh, two very different films, but I think there's a, there's a really interesting uh, overlap here. Um, but first, I want to just tell you what to expect. So, clearly, for episode one, it was our first outing together, just to kind of give you a taste of what to expect from us. The uh, the subtitle for this uh, podcast is Film, Faith, and Mental Health. And so, uh, we gave you a little bit of that. We discussed um, art house movies, our love of movies, and then also engaged in a brief discussion over the movie Halloween Kills. Talked about some faith stuff in there some mental health stuff in there, and just some overall things that we liked about the films in general. Um, so a lot of what that you saw there is what you can expect from our normal episodes. We're going to do about one of those a month. Um, those are going to be our main episodic um, uh, engagements in the Art House Roadshow. Uh, basically, all I mean by that is that those are our major shows. They'll probably be our longest shows. Uh, where Kyle and I will really dig into some stuff, talk about some upcoming um, art house films, where you can find them, um, those kind of things. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what an art house film here is in a second. We did a little bit of that in our first episode, but I wanted to engage that a little bit more deeply so you understand exactly what our main content will be. But in addition to that once a month main podcast where we will dive in deep into an art house film or something of the like, we will also have some intermittent shows in the middle. Um, Kyle will drop in occasionally by himself, or I might drop in occasionally by myself to um, engage in some very uh, interest, like work that we're interested in. Um, so, for example, um, one of the main things we'll do throughout the month is some reviews. This is just good old-fashioned movie reviews. This won't just be for art house films, but for other kind of films as well. So um, if you're looking just for art house stuff, the main episode will be the thing for you. We'll cover some and do some reviews of art house films um, in those review sessions, um, but they'll be just for reviews, less of the unpacking and engagement. There'll be a little bit as time permits, but um, and interest permits, but uh, the, major the majority of those uh, reviews will just be to kind of review what we saw in the film and things we liked about it, um, and, you know, just give you a little taste of it, but the... Uh, look for those, and you'll see clearly in those reviews what's being reviewed. So if it's a film you're interested in, check it out. And if it isn't, um, and you just want to engage in the stuff that we do on the main episodes, please feel free to do that. Um, that's up to you. Uh, but in addition to the reviews and our monthly main podcast episode, um, we're going to do some special episodes. We may not do these every month, but I think they'll be a fun way to kind of engage people around us who also work in movies. And so uh, one thing coming up that I'm hoping to do 
is a um, special engagement on a TV show uh, Midnight Mass. I know on our Twitter handle, which again, I'll, I'll get into where you can find us on Twitter if that's something you want to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to, uh, I said black mass on that, uh, Twitter account, but I'm going to go through, uh, midnight mass, uh, not black mass. That's something entirely different. Um, and so I'm going to go through that, just kind of talk about some of the themes there. I might have a co-host, might not, might just be me, um, going through that. But, uh, especially until, uh, Kyle gets to feeling better. It's going to be me for the month of December, giving you some of these special episodes and maybe a review or two. But we'll engage some other people that we like, um, or just one of us will engage another person that we like on issues of film, and that'll be a lot of fun. Um, things to look forward to for the month of December is I'll be doing a review at least of Spider-Man No Way Home. I know it's not an art house film, but like I said, if you're here just for the art house films, no worries. We've got some stuff planned for you. Um, you can look for at the end of December, early January, episode two of the Art House Roadshow. We'll be engaging Annihilation and doing a brief conversation on Christmas movies, um, what constitutes a Christmas movie, that kind of thing. We talked about this briefly at the end of episode one, but we won't be covering it until Kyle gets back. And so if you're looking for the Art House stuff, you can check out that there. But if you're interested in a review of Spider-Man No Way Home from an Art House perspective, especially with uh, themes of film and faith and mental health, integrated within that you'll probably get that somewhere uh, around the weekend of its release um, it, the special episodes you can look forward to the um, review um, and engagement with midnight mass but i will also probably be doing um, an engagement with a few films i'm interested in i'm going to probably do a brief podcast with a close friend on some movies that we really like um, he's also a kind of a film critic himself um, we'll talk about um, Star Wars maybe uh, some of those things so stay tuned we got a lot of things planned um, but you can at least count on that midnight mass engagement and that review of Spider-Man No Way Home in addition to episode 2 which will come out near the end of the month so maybe a little bit of something for you every single week if uh, if this is some stuff you like um, now before I get into what an art house film is and why we're called the Art House Roadshow, I did want to give you an update on how you can contact us. If you're interested in connecting with us, um, you can connect with me at Duke13Theo on Twitter or uh, Kyle at, at Cinema1978. Um, you can also catch us on the Art House Roadshow uh, Twitter page, which is just at Art House Roadshow. Um, that's just uh, one word there. Or you can email us at arthouseroad at gmail.com. That's arthouseroad at gmail.com. So look for us there. Um, also subscribe to us on Podbean. That's the quickest way to uh, hear when our new episode drops. Uh, and if you have any questions or some films you'd like to see us engage, uh, just feel free to reach out to us on there. Um, so anyway, uh, I wanted to get a little bit into this idea of an art house film. Um, this is kind of a interesting term. Uh, it doesn't really have one definition. Um, but you may be wondering what is an art house? Um, and what is an art house roadshow with an art house? You're dealing with a film that deals with, um, artistic expression of a movie and maybe ways that are different than a, what you see in a traditional movie. The, the kind of way that I describe it most specifically is if you watch Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, for example, fantastic movie. 
it explores themes of suffering and faith in a way that isn't like a linear um, storytelling lens. It's very artistic. The characters take on this kind of almost mystical characteristic. They explore a lot of existential questions and self-exploration themselves. Um, there's not a lot of studio interference as compared to big budget films. You'll have some significant studio oversight. And so not a lot of um, studios, uh, big studios engage in art house films. Um, there are some exceptions. There are, there are studios that are gaining some traction that do primarily art house films. The issue is because big uh, budget films uh, and uh, big budget um, studios don't really want to invest in something that seems to be so niche, but these art house films, which are independent in nature, um, have quite a following and I think are, are an excellent means of artistic expression and one that, that needs to be preserved at all costs. So part of this podcast is going to be to shed some light on the value of these films, um, not only just for their beauty and artistic expression, but also what they can offer um, humans by way of faith, a Christian faith, um, uh, and also with mental health. So people who are Christian and people uh, who want to engage in conversations, serious in-depth conversations on mental health, uh, these are films that should be on your radar. And so we're hoping that through this uh, podcast that we can find some really good um, ways of engaging in these topics that might be helpful uh, for people in that way. So that's what an art house film is. Um, artistic expression, uh, existentially motivated characters, all that good stuff. Uh, now, why are we called the art house roadshow? Um, I got the idea from the antique roadshow, you know, that, that old, uh, kind of documentary show where the people would bring in their kind of old junk to see if uh, it's worth anything. And they have antique experts and things like that. Um, that same posture is the way we're taking our, ourselves to movies and film, obviously art house mainly, but other films as well. So, um, we, uh, a, a film is brought before us and we, um, uh, look at it, examine it from all different kinds of angles and lenses and, and give our appraisals, uh, through the lens of film criticism, but also faith and, and mental health as well. What are the things to be taken away from here? And so, um, that is generally what you can expect from the Art House Roadshow. It doesn't mean we offer a price on it, a buy or sell, but just that, that task of evaluation. I think there's something to be gained from all the films we're going to engage in, and I hope that you're uh, ready for the journey that we're inviting you on. And so, anyway, uh, the next Art House film we'll probably engage in is Annihilation. Uh, which will be coming up at the end of the month uh, in our episode two or the beginning in January. And so that will be a really fun adventure uh, to go on. It's a great film. Check it out. And uh, Kyle and I will be talking about it then. Um, and we'll be doing some fun stuff in the spring. But if there's an art house film or something that you'd like to see us discuss, send us an email. Tweet at us. Um, it would be great to hear from you. Um, now, I wanted to pivot quickly just because this is this is not just a um a kind of uh explanatory episode i do i do want to do some engagement with a film or two that i've, I've engaged recently uh as well as give you the schedule of what's coming up and so i hope you'll be seeing that midnight mass um uh that midnight mass uh engagement over the next couple of weeks and then obviously spider-man the week after and then hopefully i'll be able to 
get it, uh, something else out with Kyle by the end of the month there. Um, we'll take a break around Christmas time, but um, hopefully we can get something else out sooner rather than later. Um, but I did want to do some stuff this week. So I, I, I saw two movies recently. I Over the weekend, I saw Dune, uh, which is uh, based on a novel, and it's been previously adapted to uh, the, the screen, uh, big and small. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting story. And then also, uh, the chosen Christmas special, uh, which is also kind of more of a musical, um, engagement more than anything. Um, but also a short episode from the, uh, short Christmas episode from the show, the chosen. Now it's interesting, um, why on an art house show we're doing, you know, big budget film Dune, and then also kind of like a Christian independent show. Um, I think that there's a lot of layover here and I've heard, I've heard good things about, um, about the chosen. Um, obviously I've heard good things about Dune. And so I wanted to explore both of those things myself. And what I was surprised to hear in this, um, or see, I guess in these two films is just how much they overlapped. I just want to start with Dune here really quick. And, and I'm just going to assume as always that whenever I do review stuff, first of all, there are spoilers. So if you haven't seen Dune and you, I have no idea what happens in Dune, um, you know, and you don't want that to be ruined, then uh, you might want to skip ahead um, to uh, the Chosen section. Um, and if you don't want uh, spoilers to be uh, given for Chosen, but if you've read the Bible at all, uh, specifically Luke, you, you know what happens. And so there's no surprises or stuff out of the ordinary that happens in the Chosen. Um, so if, uh, if you get spoilers from the chosen, then, um, that's, that's kind of on you. Um, no worries. But anyway, so Dune, right? Dune is this really interesting story, um, of this kind of galactic, um, sci-fi messianic, um, and just real politically heavy themes that weave together in a pretty ingenious story. Obviously it's a novel and there's a ton of novels, around Dune. It's not like just one book. It's a really long um, franchise that's been going on for, for decades now. But um, it details this this planet. This planet called Arrakis, ruled over by the Harganen Empire, um, which is kind of this empire that is uh, mining it for for money, and it's kind of causing abuse, and, and it's harming the local people uh, of the Farren uh, the Farron uh, variety, um, and they're a really interesting um, group of individuals um, in the uh, Fremen. Sorry, I said Farron. My bad. Uh, I put together Harkonnen and, and Fremen. So yeah, Fremen, uh, the Fremen Empire, uh, the Fremen people, um, and the Harkonnen Empire. Um, the Harkonnens are are you know killing them. They're taking their minerals. They're um, causing lots of harm to the planet and that kind of thing. And then the emperor, uh, declares that they emperor of the galaxy, that is declares that they need to leave. Um, and, uh, this shuts down the kind of spice trade coming from Arrakis. And so he tasks his most powerful house, the house of Trades, um, to come into the planet to restore order and to get the spice trade up and running. Uh, house of Trades is probably the most powerful house, um, in all, of the uh, galaxy and the emperor kind of fears them and so he goes behind the back of house atreides uh betrays um the duke and um sends an army of the harkonnens and also imperial army 
to kill uh, House Atreides uh, in the process. And it's, uh, it's a pretty double standard thing. There's a lot of other themes that are going along in this film, like there's a mystical element to the powers of the young main character, Paul. Um, and this kind of theme of the House of Atreides is that they are this uh, group that never betrays trust, never betrays a faith, that kind of thing. Um, but then the most compelling element, the piece that I want to focus on the most, is the Fremen people themselves. Uh, they're a desert people. They've adapted to the desert. They've created these suits that allow them to um, preserve uh, a lot of the kind of bodily fluids that they um, lose in the heat of the desert because it's a very unforgiving desert. They've learned to make peace with the land. They, there's these giant, like, sandworms, um, for example, and they've found ways to, like, ride them and, and um, you know, observe, like, some kind of, like, symbiosis with them uh, on the planet. And so it's a fascinating uh, show that engages in uh, those types of themes. Now... The piece of the Fremen that I'm most intrigued on is their own kind of messianic um, longing. So the, the main characters of the movie, especially at the beginning, uh, and the novel for that matter, are the characters of the House of Atreides. And you have the Duke um, and his son Paul. The son Paul is seen to be a kind of messianic figure. Um, there's lots of things about him. So, for example, when he puts on that suit that preserves his body fluid, he's able to do it just naturally. Um, and one of the local Fremen, uh, you know, quotes this line of the scripture that the Fremen have um, that uh, basically talks about how uh, he will make his ways your ways. Um, or your ways his ways. I have that backwards. Uh, you will make your ways, he will make your ways his ways. Um, as kind of showing that, like, this person who already knew how to put it on and put it on the way a Fremen would, um, is himself ex exhibiting these messianic kind of ideals. Now, throughout the movie, Paul keeps having this vision of this one character in the series played by uh, Zendaya um, called Chani, which you don't really get to see her a ton in the movie. Um, she kind of comes at the end. I know a lot of uh, her fans are really upset about that, but... It's a really interesting figure that throughout this movie, you know, as he's he's kind of coming into a recognition of his need to be able to learn how to rule, he's also developing these kind of spiritual powers uh, that he inherited from his mom, um, who has them. Um, and she's from an order of witches that themselves are kind of in line with the emperor and, and in some ways turn against House Atreides uh, themselves as well. Everyone's against the House Atreides, that's what you need to remember. Um, but during the movie, he keeps having these visions of war. Um, first of kind of losing his friends and then after, you know, the House of Trades falls and he's kind of the sole survivor of the House of Trades, he sees uh, visions of him leading the Fremen people in rebellion uh, against the um, Harkonnen people um, and then also, uh, but also the, uh, the Emperor, right, as this kind of figure that will rise up and lead his people and the Fremen believe that there is this uh, messianic figure um, that will come and, and save them uh, they call him the Mahdi um, that will lead their people into paradise and so this figure and, and again um, the thing I like about the film is that Paul in his visions it seems to be presented with a whole myriad of choices the majority of them are violent and involve like um, 
violent overthrows and wars and things like that, uh, leading the people of Arrakis, uh, the Fremen. Uh, but he kind of seems to have a choice, and throughout this movie, he he's kind of contemplating the variety of his choices. At least that's how it depicts. I haven't read the novel. I need to. Um, but uh, nonetheless, um, it seems like he's he has a choice here. But the majority of choices before him are this. He also has a hard time relating to the Fremen, just awkwardly, because of their customs. Right? They have such strict customs about outsiders and things like that. Um, that it's really hard for him to relate, even though he gets a lot of things right, he gets a lot of things wrong as well. Um, and, and that's really important. Like, he has visions, for example, of this person who's a Fremen that actually gives him some really important advice, um, in a dream, but then he meets him in real life that obviously I haven't met before, um, and he makes the friend really mad. Um, again, they don't know each other, and the person challenges paul to a duel to the death um, and paul tries to get him to yield but the custom is they have to be killed one of the people in the duel has to be killed and so he does end up killing him and so it's really interesting just kind of some of the themes here because there's a lot of connections between um the desert people the fremen and the jewish people uh, in scripture they're uh, primarily primarily a sojourning people israel is in fact um you know, the intention that God had for them would that they would not be um, like other nations and that they would have kingdoms and capitals. They'd be kind of a loose confederation of tribes um, that lived in the land. Um, they were kind of defined by their sojourn through the desert and, you know, the exodus and things like that. Um, but they wouldn't be like other people. They would be these kind of nomadic, uh, generally, people. Obviously, they would live in the land. Um, they would uh, possess the land in a certain sense, but they wouldn't possess it like other nations got it other things for them um yet in this process much like the fremen they become um subjected to the oppressors right uh in judges you see this a lot the judges have to be raised up to save israel they kind of get tired of it they want to be have a king and a kingdom and build security and walls and and armies and things like that that will defend them against their oppressors. And in so doing, you know, this is the famous line that God says to Samuel, um, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as king over them. And so God gives them a king. They become like other nations. For a time, they actually become oppressors, right? And God sends them into exile. And even when they come back to the land, they themselves find that they are under the thumb of other armies. And, you know, leading through people like, um, you know, Sumerians um, and the you know, Alexander the Great, but then also um, Rome, right? Uh, Rome. And so they've got a lot of people who are oppressing over them, these kind of nomadic desert people. And they too have a messianic prophecy um, that they hold tight to. Uh, the, the ones that we're celebrating during the season of Advent, right? And th there are lots of things that are described as he should be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us, um, countenance shall be on his shoulders and things like that a lot of things are being said like him and the connection between what i see in dune and what i see um in um the you know the chosen which is this idea of these desert people hoping upon hope for this messianic figure who will restore them and lead them into paradise right that's that's a, a central kind of theme that you see in both
And that's really, really important. That's really, really important to see. Um, but there's a crucial difference. And I think, you know, and I, I, I'm not a big music fan. Um, and that's, that's a problem with me. I'm not saying there's something wrong with music or worship music or things like that. I recognize that's my problem with me. Um, I, I just struggle with music these days. Um, and so, uh, one thing to keep in mind, if you go see the Christmas special for the chosen, uh, if you like the show, there's only about like a 40 minute episode of the show. Um, and about an hour and 30 minutes of worship music. And so, um, if music's your thing, then this you're going to love this. If you're really just in it for the episode, then you're going to have to wait a bit um, to get to that. Um, but one of the things that you see in The Chosen is that it really illustrates this kind of like insecure desert people. Um, and it kind of gives you two points. It talks about the messengers after Jesus dies and the messengers that come to Mary and Joseph before Jesus is born, leading into the birth of Jesus in the manger. Um, really the purpose of the story is about how the Mary's Magnifica, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That's the central theme of both on the front end. When, when Mary and Joseph are heading into Bethlehem, they, uh, find themselves or Mary finds herself kind of coming up with this poem. And on the far end, after Jesus' death, an older Mary is, uh, writing down the poem or at least reciting the poem and having one of her apostles uh one of jesus's apostles mary magdalene uh write it down so she can take it to another one of the apostles uh the apostles of the apostles that is uh the gospel writer luke who's a, who's uh, working with paul uh, at the time uh mary wants mary magdalene to take the magnificat to luke so that it will be included in the birth narratives because he is kind of constructing the stories of Jesus at that point in time. And so, um, uh, that's kind of the theme of it. Um, but what you see are these desert people, these insecure desert people like the Fremen. Um, and they have a messianic figure, right? Uh, the one, and, and they cite scripture at several points in time to talk about it. Um, like the thing that you get from this show is just how, um, fragile, both Mary and Joseph are. Mary is kind of recounting the fact that Joseph has saved her life by not bringing charges against her, which he could have. Uh, but also they're kind of on this one random road and um, that's a dangerous place to be. And Mary's pregnant and that's scary in and of itself. In this time, they've just got the donkey, the clothes on their back and just very basic provisions. And when they get to um, Bethlehem, they find themselves really in a insecure place uh, because they are out um, in basically the open air delivering this baby um, and awaiting for um, uh, something to happen right and so it's a really scary thing but uh, the difference the biggest difference between um, the two is the state in which uh, the baby comes into the world Right, the baby comes in as a mem as a child of two very poor uh, Jewish people under oppression in a very insecure place. They're not even going to Bethlehem because they want to. They're going because of the census, right? That's imposed upon them from the imperial uh, lord, right? But here's a baby born in poverty and squalor, literally um, amongst uh, animal feces. Um, out in the world right but in addition on the other side of things paul comes into the world of the fremen 
already a part of a powerful house of Frades with an army um, with royal blood in his veins. Now, Jesus is both fully human and fully divine in accordance with the orthodox positions as articulated by the Council of Chalcedon and the Council of Nicaea before it. Um, and with tr Christian tradition, these things are standard. Jesus has uh, the full divinity of God um, already with him at the point of conception in Mary's womb. Um, but, you know, he doesn't live into that narrative. He lives as a poor person, right? And I think this is significant. And, and putting this next to Dune, I think, is even more significant because Paul himself um, has the ability to raise up an army and exact vengeance on his father to lead the Fremen into battle, right? And that's probably what he's going to do, right? I haven't read the rest of them, so you'll have to tell me in the comments section or over Facebook or on Twitter what happens, and it's, it's probably going to be surprising. But the movement to violence, none, nonetheless, the desire for violence and the seeing of a messianic character as the arbiter of violence is such a classic trope in humanity. We think of great leaders, we think of great military leaders. Just think of all the leaders throughout history who have been tied to military um, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, um, Patton, George Washington, right? Uh, Ulysses S. Grant. All of these figures have deep ties to uh, military might. And we think of leaders as being these strong, violent forces, right? And that's what Paul has the potential to be. In some sense, that's his temptation in all of his visions. Is he going to be the messianic figure that leads his people into battle and victory over their oppressors, conquering them and casting them out of Arrakis? Or is he going to be something else, right? Jesus has no interest in any of that. Instead, he leads a different kind of campaign against a different kind of enemy, uh, namely the enemy of sin and death. And in fact, dies as a victim of the oppressors under whom the people whom also participate in the killing of Jesus hope that he might liberate them. All right, he dies as as a person under, but he dies at the hands of the oppressors that he was supposed to liberate Israel from. Right, it is it is quite a turn of events, and he comes into the world not as a conquering member of the House of Trades, but rather the child of two very poor um, Nazareth people trying to make their way to Bethlehem. Uh, for the census. Now, one of the points that we get from, and this is true of both the Fremen and the Jewish people, in times of oppression, um, people turn to Puritanism, like a kind of a, a, a kind of a shade between Puritanism and apocalypticism, right? This is the apocalyptic end of the world, the the warring of powers. Uh, uh, heavenly powers uh, that are exacted out, exacted out in material ways. So every kind of political struggle is itself the warring of evil versus good. Um, but also Puritanism that is is so addicted to keeping its categories clean and pure that it's willing to cast out anything that might infect or impact that. And I want that to kind of I want you to bookmark that in your mind for a second. But this is true of both the Fremen and the Israelites. You know, Jesus isn't recognized in his own time because he's, he's in a time of oppression. And there's a Puritanism about him, about the age, the age that he lives in. And that's why, you know, for example, it's such a scandal when he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. He chooses a, an act of compassion 
over and against a religious practice by calling into question the religious leader that walks on by, right? That's a problem. Um, but on top of that, you know, it's also apocalypses. They wanted somebody representative of the divine forces working against evil in the world to exact vengeance on their behalf. Um, and that is, in fact, um, what Jesus does not do, right? Paul may do that, but that's what they want, right? This apocalyptic end of the world kind of war that will restore Israel back to its proper place, the Fremen and Arrakis back to its proper place. All of this is indicative of people under oppression. And in some sense, um, um, you know, in the present world, a lot of the oppression, real or not, right, um, if, if even if you feel like you're being oppressed, rightly or wrongly, in some of the cases, like, I feel like people who truly are oppressed around the world laugh at what many Americans call oppression in terms of religious persecution these days. Um, you know, that's, that's important. But nonetheless, our codes are Puritan, and our language is, an, is apocalyptic. Every election is apocalyptic, and every religious issue is so Puritan that we must force out those who might possibly taint our categories. Now, what's interesting about this figure, about this idea of wanting these, um, wanting uh, these uh, messianic figures to be these great military leaders, I think is indicative of something profoundly human. Paul represents the hopes of of the Fremen people on Arrakis that they will be led into paradise and overthrow their oppressors. That's what people hoped. Uh, Jesus would do as well. Um, this is human. So, like, for example, um, there's a period of time in the 19th, 20th century, uh, late 19th, uh, mid to late 19th, I would say, and early 20th centuries, uh, when people were writing these biographies of Jesus. One of the ones that was most famous by was by David Strauss. He wrote Das Leben Jesu, uh, The Life of Jesus. Um, and what's interesting is that he writes this biography of Jesus, and in this biography, um, uh, Jesus looks a lot like David Strauss, you know, and the people of his culture. Um, this starts popping up everywhere. People are writing lives of Jesus all over the place. One of the constant themes of the chosen thing is, you know, God steps into your shoes to be like you. That That is absolutely true. But there is a distinction that must be maintained through that. Jesus is entirely different as well, because Jesus is fully divine. And, you know, if we say that Jesus is like us without that second feature... We oftentimes um, co-opt Jesus's message with our own, right? Making him a prophet of the gospel that we would like to preach, right? Of some kind of political ideology or something like that. Um, and so you see that with David Strauss. He, he's, he's making Jesus to look like someone who embodies the perfect morals of his day, right? And this happens like all throughout the 19th century into the 20th. Uh, but, I mean, it happens before. Never so as intentionally as it does in the 19th and 20th century. This happens all the way up until um, uh, a guy named Albert Schweitzer writes The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Um, or he talks about everyone who writes a history of Jesus is just looking down the well of history and seeing their own reflection back up at them. Right? It's a beautiful line. He's absolutely right, too. Because uh, that's what they're doing there in those lives of Jesus. And so, nonetheless, it's just important to say... Um, and to point out that that's a human um, temptation, always to form God, form Jesus in our own image, 
instead of allowing Jesus to form us in his image, right? That's, that's the temptation. And so Paul here is kind of somewhat facing this. Will he be the people that Arrakis want him to be? Or will he be something else? Will he be the person that his father wants him to be? Or will he be something else? So, for example, there's a scene where um, his father says to Paul, I want you by my side at all times so that you can start to learn how to make these decisions and all this kind of good stuff. And Paul, with filled with anxiety, says, well, what if I can't do it? What if I can't be the man you want me to be? Be the ruler you want me to be? And very graciously, I think his father says something that's very kind. Then you'll be the only thing I ever wanted you to be, which was my son. In some sense, there's a there's a kind of divine um, correspondence there between um, like an image of what Jesus and all that kind of stuff and, and the father, right? Jesus is the son, and that's the only thing that truly uh, matters, right? What Jesus does arises from his status as the son of God, right? The second person of the Trinity. Um, and so that's essential. But, you know, who is Paul going to be? Is he going to look down the well of history and see his own reflection and just be, I uh, see the reflection of what the Fremen want him to be, right? Or is he going to be something else? You know, the, the thing that, that, yet again, the Chosen does really well is to illustrate exactly the kind of condition that Jesus would have come into, right? Maybe not exactly in the sense of, you know, his parents wouldn't have spoken English. Um, you know, uh, it probably would have been even more dirty than it was even in the movie. I mean, he's like scraping, Joseph is scraping um, animal feces out of the way so uh, Mary can have her child in a, in a semi-sanitary environment. But nonetheless, it's very different. Jesus doesn't come into the world as a conquering king. He comes into the world as a baby. Um, and his entire life is a kind of dispossession of that title of warrior, right? He puts that down every, every chance that he gets, right? Disarms Peter, and that's really important. And the swords that he bears are not to kill, but to divide us from the things of this world that would keep us from uh, pursuing the kingdom, right? They're not swords that we can stab and maim and kill, but they are swords that divide and and loosen us from the idolatry that we constantly commit as humans, and specifically the idolatry that prevents us from seeing who Jesus is. And so these two kind of messianic um, figures, I think, dance in our mind. So, for example, um, you know, that problem doesn't stop even with Albert Schweitzer's book. It continues into the 20th century, and you have people... Um, uh, who find themselves like Adolf von Harnack, who writes, you know, what is Christianity, writing that wonderful text where he talks about, like, uh, the Christian spirit is the German spirit. And he puts that together with one another. Um, I think that's really important to note that this is a problem that persists, even though uh, it's so perfectly critiqued by Albert Schweitzer. But people are responding to that. And, and the reason why I bring up von Harnack is he was kind of essential into the kind of militarization of Germany in World War One. And then also that kind of sympathy of the Christian spirit being within the German spirit. Um, and there's some great Hegelian language here that we can get into, but, you know, we don't have time for that. And you probably don't want to hear about Hegel right now. Um, but we will do that later, maybe on a different podcast. But nonetheless, um, you have this sense in which the German is seen as the full embodiment culturally of what it means to be Christian. And that's not a new problem, obviously. Romans believed it at one period of time. 
um, the um, uh, you know Europeans believed that at one period of time, um, and then other cultures even up until the present day. Um, and I'll let you think about that in your own mind. Um, what it means to be Christian is embodied up with a particular kind of culture, but. One of the people that helps, again, think through this kind of chosen language of how different Jesus is, is the language that um, that one of the kind of greatest criti- critics of, of Germany at the time, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? He's a, he's a theology professor, pastor, um, Nazi resistor throughout his life, and, and he spends a year at the University of Berlin lecturing in the fall 1932 he lectures on creation of fall in the spring of 1933 he lectures on christology um you can buy that those lectures on christology um either in his berlin um writings and the works of dietrich bonhoeffer or the uh, christ the center book which you can buy in a trade paperback um, crossway publishing i think has that out um and he has this idea of the logos and the counter logos that he talks about that. He says the counter logos is that which tries to absorb uh, everything into his will. It is second to the logos. It is penultimate, it is not ultimate. The logos is that which cannot be assimilated into the schemes of the counter logos. And you got to hear Bonhoeffer in his context saying this as he's looking outside the window, watching Germany kind of being taken over by what he sees is the counter logos and the only thing that can save him is the logos the logos being from john 1 uh, the word logos that became flesh um, and it cannot be assimilated into the schemes of the counter logos and that's very 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 cool um, to hear him making those kind of connections but the question that motivated him throughout his entire ministry was in fact who is jesus christ and for him he was, him being Bonhoeffer, Jesus was that unassimilatable logos that pushed back and lived in spite of and always defied the expectations of the culture around him, right? Um, and the point is, is that, you know, he used this as a means to help him get Jewish people out of Germany, because if, if the enemies of God are seen as the enemies of whatever nation you're a part of, then you can be sure that what you are worshiping is the counter-logos, not the logos. God um, sent God's only Son, and this is the whole point of the Chosen, into the world so that all might have life um, and have it abundantly. And this is the important of John 3.16 and those kind of things. Christ dies for all so that all might be reconciled into God. And that is, that is an important piece of the puzzle and the difference between how Jesus wages his battle against the powers of sin and death versus how the messianic figure like Paul would wage, the, uh, wage a war against the Harkonnen Empire. Very different messianic figures. Uh, the counter-logos versus the logos is something that we will struggle with all of our lives as Christians. And so it's important to see these things um, and make them apparent in our lives. Well, I've already spoken too much, uh, so that'll about wrap us up for today. So be looking for our next um, couple podcasts. Uh, hopefully 
Um, in the next couple weeks, you'll be seeing that review for Spider-Man No Way Home. I'll also be on the lookout for a special episode where I uh, engage in uh, an evaluation of the Midnight Mass series on Netflix. Again, both of those will be spoiler-heavy, so if you're looking to avoid spoilers, then uh, watch the show, watch the movie first, and then come give it a check out. I'd love to hear what you think of the interpretation. Also look for episode two of the Art House Roadshow coming out at the end of the month where we will engage in a conversation on what makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie and the Art House film Annihilation. So until then, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, uh, Art House Roadshow, art, at Art House Roadshow, or on Gmail, uh, arthouseroad at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you then. Until then, until next time, I hope you will stay well. Happy Advent, everyone. Uh, be safe, be kind to one another, and I wish you the very best this holiday season. Thanks, everyone. Bye.